We have a few rules in our home, and one of them is, if mommy or dad, dad make it, you have to try it. You'd think that sounds pretty basic, but it has been a full-on entrenched warfare situation from time to time over this issue. Getting them to try food that is good. I mean, this has happened to you with children, friends, parents, spouses, people sitting next to you at a restaurant. I, I don't know who you're talking to. Where you're experiencing something delicious, or you see something beautiful, you hear music that's amazing, and you want to share that with someone, and they're like, I'm good. Like, no, no, you don't understand. It's amazing. You have to at least try it. We have a couple options when we have this beautiful, delicious, or good thing. Now, at our home, you have to try it. That's the rule if you're our child. But if you're a guest in our house, we just lock you in a room until you try it. No, we don't do that. Um, we, we let you choose because you have agency in this, I guess. It won't do any good to, I mean, would it? I mean, if we shoved the food in your mouth, that's not going to go well, is it? We lock you in a room, make you listen to music. Or we could wash our hands situation. I have a, uh, a friend whose grandmother has a phrase that I just love. So uh, this friend isn't super into shrimp. And so the uh, shrimp were added to a meal. And uh, the friend said, well, I don't, I don't want any of the shrimp. That's not something I want to be a part of. And the grandmother said, well, you just don't know what good is. I like that. What would it be like if we didn't know what good is? We, we think we know what good is, but what if, what if we don't? What if we, what if we get it wrong? Or what if we miss out? Or what if we don't see? What if we don't taste? What if we miss out on being a part of the good intended, designed, and built for you and for me? This uh, series, When Helping Hurts, has been an exploration of the mission for God's people that is older than the existence of the church. The church doesn't have a mission. The church exists to fulfill God's mission in the world. And I mean university, church here, but I mean all the churches everywhere. We believe pretty firmly here that there's only one church. It's Jesus's church. You can have different flavors of how you follow Jesus, but there's only one Jesus. He's not divided. Uh, and so following after Jesus, that mission we discussed last week is rooted in God's response to the rebellion of creation itself. In the Genesis uh, testimony to this, we get a story of human beings choosing ownership over stewardship trying to steal that which God is trying to give. That's kind of what we do. Trying to get a hold of and hold on to that which God is trying to give us, maybe at a pace which we don't find to be to our liking, so we hold on to it. We don't share, we, we, we cling to. And, and because of that, the expulsion from the garden, that place of abundance and safety, we find ourselves in a world that we own, but it isn't what God designed and desired. And so we talked about God's invasion of hope of that place. That the resulting alienation begins in who we are, our very bodies. Adam and Eve eat the fruit, and then they realize they're naked. They were naked before, and now they're ashamed. And so shame and alienation from their very bodies results. And then they hide from God. They start blaming each other. And then the very labor of their lives is distorted. The ground doesn't obey them. By the sweat of their brow, they're told they will eat. Those alienations are the fall in our tradition. We say that, the, the fall of humanity, of creation itself. It's also a way of talking about what the nature of poverty is. 
that material poverty, which is generally what people mean when they say uh, someone is poor or we feel poor or have poverty, um, is the alienation from the resources of life, from our labor, alienated from our wallets or from banking or from money or, or fruit fields to labor in, that alienation. That can be systematic and generational, or it can be temporary. What I like to call grad school. It just depends on how where that hits you in life. Or you can be born into it, and the weight of that is very different. But the nature of it is defined by that alienation. I am not connected to and reconciled to those resources. But we're also poor in spirit, the Bible tells us, when the alienation has come and built distance between us and God. We can be poor in our relationship to each other, and in our own identity, our own bodies don't fit, our own lives don't make sense. We are poor, we're alienated in that way. We talked last week about how God's response to this is to invert uh, blame and heal it with responsibility. Remember Adam, when he's questioned about what happened in the garden says, look, that woman that you put in here with me did this. Right? It's all finger pointing, it's all blame. That is the root of human brokenness and we still do it. Oh, I'm the only one that's been married longer than a half hour? Okay, cool, I'll, I'll take it. Blame happens, but God doesn't say who's to blame. God says, I'll be responsible. It's not God's fault that the world is fallen and broken, but God says, I will take the brunt of that, the responsibility thereof, because it's my creation. I love that dirt. I love those relationships. I love spending time with humans and I want you me, you, all of us, my beloved, he calls us, to be reconciled in his grace. And so the cross is a story of God taking responsibility for that which we are to blame for. And so when we start thinking about being on mission as God's people, we're rooted in the truth that it's not about who's to blame, it's about who can respond with grace, love, and uh, offering of self. God shows us and says, follow me. And on the way, it's going to be pretty easy to see the effects of that alienation, that fallen state of creation. We're good at it. We're trained in it. We're trained in seeing what's wrong. I see this in my own children. One came home recently, got a 95 on a test. 95, that's right. Ooh, that's what you would normally say. 95. 20 questions on the test, 95. My math holds up. Uh, then he had it right. He came home and he said, I have a test go. He said, I missed one. I've never had them come home and say, I got 19 right. We train ourselves to see what's wrong and our mistakes. And if that made us better people, it would be fine. The problem is what it makes us is adults later on trained to look for someone who gives us a grade, someone to tell us we have value. And it also teaches us to not tell the truth about mistakes, to hide the places where we're wounded, because then our performance of life might appear like we have it together. That, you know, we came to church this morning and we didn't argue with folks in the car or the car next to us, or from two weeks ago still having a fight from work, or whatever the frustrations, we, we come here and we, we get our eyebrows looking good, we tuck in our shirts and, and we look like we have it together, because the grade we think will be on how do we look, how do we appear, how does our Christmas card show up in the mailbox? And so God says, no, that's not the eyes I want you to have. That's not what I want you to be fixated upon. Rooted in that mistake, sin, and brokenness, and woundedness narrative, we get shaped to see those things. What did we miss, not what did we get right? In us, in our relationships, in our connection to God, and in our mission and ministry with other people. 
So it invites us not to be people who enter this journey of mission and involvement, this invasion of heaven into earth, to fix things. Oh man, we want to fix it. We want to fix it. I, I want to fix it. We, we watch the news, we, we drive the streets, we hear stories of challenges in the schools or our, our prison systems or in our culture, and we, we want to fix it. Here's the problem with fixing it. Fixing it goes back to correct the mistakes you made on your test and turn it back in for 100. We want to make sure those mistakes are gone. We want to fix it. The problem is our capacity to fix things is a little more limited than we believe. I had a dear couple from the 815 service who have been married uh, over 55 years. And he said, she's still trying to fix me. And I said, how's it going? And she says, it's not working. <laughs> we can't fix the people that we love. We can't fix our kids. We can't fix our parents. We can't fix our spouses. We can't fix our government. We can't fix the schools. We can't fix ourselves. Oh, that's frustrating. That's my temptation. If I worked a little harder, I got this, Jesus, I'll handle it. I, if I did this a little, and then I find I'm into the fixing business of myself, and God says, that is not what I've called you to. Instead of being fixers, we're called to face the truth. If we face the truth in our relationships, the healing and power that can be poured in and upon friendships, marriages, families is amazing. If we face the truth about ourselves, our wounds and pain, sins and failings, and also God's love for us and his grace for us, the healing that can happen, the hope that can be restored are boundless. If we face the truth about the neighborhoods, the, the schools, the, the places that we live, work, eat and play, if we face that, I believe God's grace can pour out upon us and those we share this space with in powerful and potent ways. If we show up and knock on the doors of communities we think we're sent to and say, hey, I'm here, uh, you have problems, and I'm here to fix you. I don't know about you, but if you knock on my door with that story, it's gonna be a fairly brief conversation. I'll be polite because, well, people know where I work. <laughs> but if I'm feeling really playful, I gotta tell you the truth, if someone knocks on the door or something like that, I'll, I'll do, hey, Holly, my wife, uh, it's for you. <laughs> and then she comes down thinking it's a friend and it turns out to be somebody selling something or fixing something. And oftentimes, well-intended church people, we have shown up in schools, we've shown up in communities, we've shown up in foreign countries and said, we know you have problems and we're here to fix them. The problem with that is, it makes the people that we're sent to lower. And this cross business is amazing because as much as we try, the ground before it is always level. You think I wanna dig a hole because I'm not worthy to stand next to somebody else and that ground is level. We wanna build up a platform sometimes to stand over and above, but that ground is level. Or we think you have problems, we'll dig you a hole to stand in, let's see if we can fill that dirt in, but the ground is level. We all come to face the truth, not to fix it. And in that, the people we have been sent to might indeed be blessed. And that begins by looking not to what is wrong, but to what is good. The scripture this morning will help us in this endeavor. It is from Colossians, the first chapter, Paul's letter. Beautiful, uh, dense argument as always with Paul. For this reason in verse nine, since the day we heard it, this is that you have faith and hope in Jesus Christ and have joined the mission. We have not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So not that we would fix you in this partnership, Paul writes, but that you would be filled to the brim with the power and presence of God's wisdom in your life that you might have agency in this story so that you may lead lives worthy of the Lord, 
fully pleasing to him. As you bear fruit in every good work and as you grow in the knowledge of God, may you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power and may you be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints of life. This is a reoccurring New Testament thing that we might endure suffering with patience. Revelation's chock full of it. We're studying that on Wednesday nights. It, it's a real challenge because, well, we don't put that on the brochure. If you're visiting with us, we're glad you're here. And you go out there, we got some really cool and slick photos of stuff that happens here, cool stuff that's happening. And uh, that we don't put, come and join University Methodist Church, be a part of what God's doing, and watch your suffering increase. <laughs> yeah. If the end and the result and the mission was full participation, if the, if the church's population, let's say it that way, was the mission, then we would never want to bring that up. Because it's a tough opening line, isn't it? And yet this New Testament over and over again says, if you follow Jesus, the one who is faithful unto death, it might get harder in some moments, but if you face it, it's worth it. Where you're going through the storm, through the valley, through the pain, through the darkness, all of those things won't be as powerful. And this is the problem with focusing on sins, mistakes, errors, and wounds. They scream at us. They demand our attention. And the New Testament invitation is to realize that as powerful and potent as our wounds, our sins, and our mistakes seem to us and to the world, God's grace, his presence, and his power are greater still. We focus on the smaller thing. Sin is smaller than God's grace, even yours. Systemic broken systems of evil are not as strong as the kingdom of heaven being poured out through Jesus Christ in the world. That is our focus and our fire. This is the invitation to be formed in this way. And so sometimes between what is and what will be, it's hard and it hurts. Sometimes we come to know how things ought to be. Like we know that children shouldn't be in foster care. That children shouldn't be abused, neglected, and unloved. They shouldn't, but we know they are. And that, as we come to know what Jesus has promised, actually can hurt more. We know that folks who are seasoned veterans of this life should be honored and revered and blessed saints among us, but we know in our culture, oftentimes they're left out unloved and ignored and lonely. And that gap, as we get closer to the image of what God dreams for our world and desires and designs for us and for all, can be harder. And maybe we should put on the brochure, this is not for the faint of heart, it's for the full of the spirit. It's not for the faint of courage, it's for the bold, those that are willing to follow after through God's grace. For that is the mission, not to fill the pews, but to fill the world with God's invasion of heaven and hope. The church, remember, is not the point. It is a partner with God in the mission that God has had from the beginning to relieve and reconcile the alienation of sin, death, and decay. Giving thanks to the Father who's given us inheritance. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and earth were created, things visible and invisible, were thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. This is all Jesus. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, God was pleased to do what? Reconcile to himself all the good people who go to church every Sunday. All the folks whose attendance at church can shame the folks that will show up here in six weeks and come to Christmas Eve. Maybe even sit in your pew, park in your parking place. Save all those folks uh, that get it always right, that only miss one on the mistakes and their sins are small, limited, and unseen. No, reconciling all things. This, the New Testament talks about the world and its brokenness to get us to see some of the, the power of God's grace. It is an error to believe because of that the world that we find ourselves is somehow the enemy that must be defeated. It is the beloved that must be redeemed. It is God's he reclaims and recalls. And so all of creation is under this pouring out of grace that's going on. It's an invasion that's let loose in Easter and in Pentecost. It is not an escape. Far too often we have read the gospel as a good news story of how we, those who have uh, learned the mystery of Christ, are exempted from some eternal punishment, but also pulled out and escaping from the world and waiting for that deliverance to come. It is instead an invitation to receive that same promise, but be poured out in mission and ministry in an invasion, not an escape. So that the streets, dirts, valleys, trees, rivers, coffee shops, workplaces, and schools have heaven pouring into them because agents of heaven are being filled up, healed, and made whole, and sharing the good thing that God is doing in their hearts and lives. And through him, God is pleased to reconcile to him all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Here ends the reading, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So the face of Jesus is what we're invited to see. The face of Jesus who is sent by a God motivated not from loathing, not from anger, not from bitterness, but love. For God so loved the world, is John 3, 16, that gets held up at football games. It is the number one scripture of bulletin board manufacturers all across the world. For God so loved the world. Out of love, Jesus is sent, and so are we. So when we go on mission to an elementary school or to a community, or if you want to bless the people in your family, we must be motivated and moved by love. If we go to folks in judgment, if we go to folks with an eye towards fixing what's wrong with them rather than celebrating what God has done in and through around them and wants to do still in their lives, the capacity to reach people that we have prejudged is minimal. Not here, it was a previous church. I was talking to some men who were trying to get some men ministry going and they were um, seasoned veterans of life. And their men's meeting was at five o'clock on Thursday morning. And they had oatmeal. There is nothing wrong with five o'clock on, on Thursday morning or oatmeal. And they came to my office and they said, why aren't the young men coming to our men's ministry meeting? And I said, I have a couple ideas. But the biggest problem wasn't that it was at five o'clock or that it was at oatmeal. As they talked about the young men who should be there, they didn't like them. They didn't like me. 
<laughs> you find that amusing. That's great. Like, well, I don't like you either. Fantastic. God's grace abounds. Um, they didn't really want young people to be there. They just recognized the lack of it. It was some mistake on a test, right, in their minds. The difference would be, we're so in love, sold out for, I want to connect with and be in relationship with young men, then I'm willing to make changes, I'm willing to do all kinds of things, because my focus isn't preserving something, it is providing and blessing someone else. And so when we go to Lock Hill, or to Rollinson, or to Hobby, or to Colonies North to partner with these schools, we don't come with all the answers or tell them we're going to fix. We say, here's what we know and have. How can we be a blessing and share with you? And it's amazing how well folks respond when you say, I just want to be a part of good things in your life. See, we have to know what good is. Everybody knows what bad is. Everybody sees the brokenness and the pain. We can all see the same news. We see the same reports. We can look at the test scores. We can look at incarceration rates. We can look at our, our city. We can see what's wrong. It's everywhere. Good news people have to find a way in the midst of all the muck and mire to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus who says, I'm reconciling all things, heaven and earth, including San Antonio. So there is good beauty and truth waiting to be seen, magnified and multiplied by those with eyes to see and ears to hear. Those of us called and sent, filled up, healed up, so that what's happened in us might happen in other folks and in relationships with them, relationships with God and relationships indeed with material goods of the world. All of this is a part of God's invasion of the world. And so it's a holistic scale of things, and we have to think deeply about how we might bless and bring hope in ways that do good enduringly rather than make us feel better or give us oatmeal on Thursday morning at 5 in the morning. I've done it. I've done it. So we have the CPS um, giving trees out there. By the way, those cards are just like when your own children ask for things. Um, some things they ask for, if they ask you for a $19,000 you know, uh, Honda Civic, you don't have to buy that for them. Look at the list and then respond like people who care about children, which is, this is what I can do, this is what I can't do. So if you pick those up, don't feel like that's instructions any more than you would if you're, oh, well, maybe you did. I don't. My children say, I want a new whatever. I'll say, well, then you're getting this food that you didn't try earlier. <clears throat> uh, and so we, we, you're invited to do that. But that I love because I will tell you again, previous ministry, previous place, we did a giving tree type thing and it was for uh, neighborhood children. It was for all the needy kids, right? Which defines them as something's wrong with them. They're broken, we're not, let's fix it. And so what we did is we collected and we, we get all these toys. It was in a neighborhood we were partnering with and we felt amazing. I mean, there were so many toys everywhere. There were bikes, there were uh, bears. Uh, I feel like I'm about to do the, you know, the lions, tigers, and bears thing. I don't know what that was. But we were bringing blessings. We were all there. It was great. We felt awesome. The kids are going berserk. We had a great time. We told the story back at the church. Everybody cheered. You know what we found out? We had hurt the hearts and created space between those children and their parents because we were the heroes of Christmas. I mean, we didn't mean to hurt anybody, but we did. And we did it with great intentions. But what we did was come in saying, here's the thing that we can do to fix a hole that you have, rather than being in a relationship with someone and saying, first, tell me what's good. Tell me what's great about your neighborhoods and streets. Tell me what's good about your family or about your story. And the CPS partnership is beautiful because there sadly aren't parents to displace 
in this situation, and so we can step in and partner with social workers to make sure those children in a unique place have a blessed Christmas. That's why we do that. But that type of thinking goes through all the ways in which we do ministry and mission. And it challenges us to think more deeply and long-term about the work that we do. And part of the challenge is, brothers and sisters in Christ, is that we're so good at managing a crisis. This church in particular is amazing. The hurricane came through, we turned the North Building into a medical shelter for weeks, we worshiped all together. Um, it was an amazing season of pulling together and blessing the coast, and we've been working in response to that. Uh, unbelievable, y'all gave tons of money, uh, we sent it off, people were blessed. We handle crisis so well that we want to treat every issue we face like it is one. That's a problem. When we treat someone uh, who has diabetes um, medically like they have a broken ankle that needs to be set, we mistreat them. We don't give them the actual thing that they need, patterns of life or disciplines to eat differently or blood sugar or insulin and drugs, things that need to be ongoing patterns of treatment. In the same way, many times when we're gonna be a blessing to communities, one, we gotta be willing to be vulnerable and blessed ourselves, and two, we gotta think developmentally and long-term. If the crisis comes, we wanna meet it. We have triage to do, and that's what CAM is in the back of our property. CAM is a, uh, a rent assistance, food, and clothing, basic human needs. But once those needs are met, we have all kinds of opportunity to partner with people about uh, financial literacy or economic opportunity or life decisions and journeys so that 20 years from now, we're not dealing with a crisis from their children. It was told to me this way and it has never left my mind. Imagine we're down on the river walk, maybe we're on the little stage by La Vida, I love that little space down there in the little village on the stones and people sing there and get married there. and. Um, do a lot of things there and the, the kind of boats come by. If we, the boat went by and they were telling people the story and behind the boat we saw a flailing four-year-old, what would we do? What would we do, friends? We'd jump in, that's exactly right, Sally. We would jump in. If there's a four-year-old in the water, and I know it's about three feet deep, I've seen it drain, but the kid doesn't know that, can't swim, we jump in, get him out. And then another kid comes down we jump in, we get them out. Another kid comes in and we jump in and we get them out. I don't know what number kid triggers a thought, but church, we've got to have it about our culture and our society and about our city if it's going to be dreamed alongside of God's dream for what our street should look like. And that is eventually we want to go upstream and find out what's throwing our kids into the river. And either defeating that foe or inviting that foe to join us in not flinging children into the river. Or, and this may be more the case, what is it that is teaching our children that their only and best option is to throw themselves in a river that they drowned in? What does it look like to think in terms of what will be different 10 years from now if God gets what God wants for this city? If God gets what God wants for the schools that we partner with, if God gets what God wants on the neighborhood streets on which we live, God's dream in reconciling heaven and earth together is bigger than people not being hungry. It's bigger than people not being without clothes in the winter. We gotta do that, but that's like the starter's block of the great invasion of hope in the world. And brothers and sisters, it's messy, it's hard, but it's worth it to face the truth about our communities and cultures, to face the truth about us, that we might share the one whose face gives us hope, who takes us upriver and say, these are your children falling in. The truth is they are. 
Whether they live south of San Antonio or they live uh, down Lock Hill, Selma, or they live in Holotus or they live in our homes, it's our kids. And we're called to be motivated and moved like Jesus by love on the mission to bless them. And on that mission, we got to look for what's good. I got to tell you, people say love is blind. No, it's not. Not real love. I see my kids. They're not here. I'll tell you, they're not perfect. It's their mother's fault. That woman that you put in here in this house with me, she did it. She gave them that to eat, and she said, you have to try it. No, they're not perfect. I'm not perfect. I, but I don't, not that I, it's not that in love, I don't see that they have things that they will struggle with. In fact, I can see things, I mean, I'm sure parents can relate to this. I can see things that decades from now, they'll still be working on. I know my own story well enough to know that. But in love, what I do is I see, hope, pray, multiply, support, encourage the good that is in them. I ask them every day on the, the days I do my day right, what was good today? Because they're going to tell you what's wrong. Mine do at least. Maybe I have weird children. Well, I do have weird children, but they're going to tell you what's wrong. Well, I want to know what's good. Can you develop eyes to see it? Because we're so trained to see what's wrong. And it's the same journey with others. Love doesn't lie. Love believes the best calls the best, calls the good in communities or people. And if we want to reach people for Jesus, whoever that is, so long as they're a label or they're an other or they're unloved by us, we won't be the folks that reach them. And so the calling is to leave this place and look for the good and to join God in dreaming, what could this world look like? What will it look like? When the great prayer of our hope that Reed led us in earlier is true, that God's will is done on earth as it already is in heaven, reconciling all things Jesus is doing, the one we look to and follow, the one who says be joyful even if it's hard because it's worth it. Face it. You can't fix it. Oh, but Lord, the amazing things that can happen as we face the truth, as we face our community, as we face each other, as we face the relationships we're a part of, as we face our Lord, the amazing grace that can be poured out, the amazing hope that can be ours, the amazing power that can be poured through, and the different city that you and I can live in. I don't know what to do about things that are far from here. But on the dirt to which the shadow of our steeple falls, we have been called. And to this dirt, I believe, the hope and power of heaven is being poured out. And if we had eyes to see and ears to hear, we would see the good, the beautiful, and the lovely, and the assets, even in the poorest of the poor, who are sometimes us. That God's grace might be poured out in such abundance that the alienation, the brokenness and sin of the story fades to dust and is no more, and is reconciled to the one in whom we find our head, the mission, purpose, the cause, Christ, who is the visible of the invisible God, who says, follow me. Let's pray. Lord, we don't know all the things that you are stirring up in us with a passion for this community, Lord, but we would pray to join you in dreaming that the schools and places we work and the city that we call home would be something we fall in love with deeply, that we might, like you, be so in love that we give of ourselves and we share this great gift in Jesus, that we might face this world unafraid, knowing that you, with courage and compassion, have called us, that we might live boldly and bravely before you. 
not those who have been marked by darkness, but instead transferred for the kingdom of your son in whom we trust, in whom we pray. Amen.